K-Billy Super Sounds of the 70s continues. You just heard The World as a Ghetto by War and Billy Don't Be a Hero by Bull Donaldson and the Haywoods. And if you're the 12th caller, you'll win two tickets to the Monster Truck Extravaganza being held tonight at the Carson Fairgrounds, featuring Big Daddy Don Bodine's truck, The Behemoth. The 12th caller wins on the station where the 70s survived. Hey, everybody. It's good to be back. Um, Before we get started, Lance, I wanted to briefly acknowledge the famed German filmmaker Wolfgang Peterson, who uh, passed away earlier today. Um, He was the director of the Oscar-nominated film Das Boot, which, um, brilliant film. I own it. I think I even own it on Blu-ray. He directed several other notable action movies that people probably do remember, um, In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood. And he directed Air Force One with Harrison Ford. And he also did The Perfect Storm with uh, George Clooney. Um, So as we celebrate another filmmaker tonight, which is what tonight's episode is all about, I just wanted to acknowledge Mr. Peterson's contributions to cinema. If you haven't seen Das Boot, um, you should do yourself a favor and watch it soon. So listen, um, you are wearing a K-Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s t-shirt. We just discussed this right before we hit record that you did not buy that for the podcast I didn't think you would have, and that is a retro, literally retro shirt. I have, I have had this shirt for. I mean, it's one of my oldest T-shirts in in the collection. Um, however, however, I must call out that there have been other things, uh, Dennis, that I have participated in with you, where I have bought clothing specifically for that evening and this is not one of those times so i'm proud to have this t-shirt in the collection but i wouldn't put it past me to do that the only tarantino inspired shirt that i think i've ever owned was given to me as a gift i didn't even buy it it was a uh, university of santa cruz banana slugs the banana t-shirt slugs phenomenal from phenomenal. pulp fiction right that's the, of that's course. the shirt that vince, vince and vega wears at the end of the last chapter right of course, I had a buddy who equally loved uh, Quentin uh, Tarantino, and he showed up with a UC Banana Slugs triple bar hat. Do you remember those white hats with yep. the three bars? And I got so angry at myself that I did not beat him to the punch and get that hat when it was all the rage. It was such a such a quality pull. You're back for your second tour of duty on this podcast. Um, you were on here last summer. It was a long awaited episode between you and me. We've been talking about it for quite some time because you had a podcast yourself. Um, I will tell you, Lance, flat out, that episode is literally, I would say it's probably like top two for me on all, of the not that many episodes that I've done. Um, but it's it was a phenomenal conversation. It was exactly what I expected it would be. You got me to admit that my... I've entered the tumbleweed phase of my career. That's on the public record. I said this. I think um, you at your honest, vulnerable self expressed in words is a gift to those that get to either read it or hear it. And I was 
thrilled that both of us leaned into the conversation the way we did, because that's how we normally talk with one another. And so the fact that we had the opportunity to have one of our normal conversations on the record is, uh, is really, really um, something I cherish as well. You and I touched on Tarantino a little bit last summer when you were on, but we didn't certainly get into the level of detail that you and I have always told each other through the years that we, we owe ourselves a conversation to talk about tonight's topic. So a few months ago, I, I was reading some interview with, with Quentin. I don't know what it was, where it was. And he was talking about um, how, as a kid, he used to read novelizations of various movies. So basically, when a movie came out, they would the studio, I guess, would hire some hack writer and they would write a cheap, you know, paperback, you know, novelization of that movie and, you know, put it on bookshelves at 7-Eleven and Walden Books or wherever you got your books. And like, you know, and people would buy it. So I was one of those idiot kids that bought many of those books. Um, I bought the novelization of The Karate Kid, for example, in 1984. No so so of course. So when Tarantino talked about how he read those, as you can imagine, because he's a film encyclopedia. Um, but so what I found out in this interview is that he, because of that, he was so inspired that he decided to write a novel or novelization of his most or his recent film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I had no idea that Quentin wrote that as a book that he published within the last year. So, of course, I went out and got the hardcover of that. I'm just about done reading it. I'm, I'm just about finished with it. I mean, I, you don't need me to tell you that this guy's a writer. Um, but basically I love the film. I know you love the film, but the book just gets into all kinds of detail. I mean, the screenplay is definitely there. Like you could see the bones of it. The movie is definitely there, but he gets into all kinds of level of depth with the characters and the backstories and all the film references, the music references that like when I was, when I started reading it, that's what got me into this notion of this year. It's the 30th anniversary of Reservoir Dogs. It opened in 1992 and, um, it's his first film. And I just felt like, man, what a what an opportunity for you and I to get together and talk about dogs, talk about Tarantino, talk about whatever we want to talk about, as long as I don't talk about tumbleweed. First, uh, I really think you and I have been itching to have this conversation on the record for quite some time. And it it feels a little like there's a scoreboard somewhere and we are both going to try and land <laughs> land some some points here. I, I, I don't want this to be competitive, um, but you and I, I expect to have some differences of opinions and I, I hope to get you to submit to mine. That is, that is one of my, one of my goals, just FYI. Um, that's your I, goal when you always talk to me, that's always your goal. <laughs> it is, it is with a, uh, it is with a, a, someone who I can verbally spar with. Um, and you are, you are wonderful at it. I, I am amazed um, at Quentin Tarantino's in, encyclopedic knowledge of films as well. And, I, and it's one of the things I do want to get into when we talk about him, whether or not um, in some of his films he was too encyclopedic. I'm going to use that as a, a word. Um, and, it, and it caused confusion for the mass audiences and whether that matters at all or not does it actually deteriorate or make better a film so i i want to i want to make sure we we get into that um but i i'm gonna i want to challenge you on something I, something that i was struggling with um and am still struggling with about quentin tarantino i i see i saw him 
I'm, I'm trying to reshape my opinion on this. I, I saw him as a writer, just like you said, that he is a phenomenal writer. And I saw him as writer first, except I feel like he writes what he sees in his head, that he creates it in his head first before writing it. So does that, because he's creating the imagery, make him a visual artist, a movie maker first that just happens to be so gifted at writing that he can capture the details and nuance of what he sees. I have a hot take on this. That's actually very similar to what you actually just asked. Can we stick a pin on that and get back to it? You betcha, um, man. You betcha. No, we're definitely going to get into that because I, I actually I agree with you. Because the, one of the points I'm going to make is when there was a there was a point in his career where I think he made that pivot, where he went from writer to always always a great writer. Don't get me wrong, but like I think he went from this point of writer to visual stylist. Um, and, and I think if you think about it, you'll know when that pivot was, but we're going to get into that in a couple of minutes. Uh, Cause I feel like you just set up the Beatles revolver moment, right? Where, where that's, that is when they went from poppy, uh, teenage, um, music, uh, which was still so revolutionary and phenomenal, which is not taking away from effectively the, the red, the Red Greatest Hits album, and they transitioned into the into the blue, and Re- Revolver was kind of that point. I'm excited to to hear and almost project what I think is the is that turning point in your mind's eye. All right, let's let's just do it now. So it's just better. It's just better to do it now. So it's not as much of a hot take. It's just it's just my theory on this. So first three movies, right? Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, all released in a five year span. All of them focus on an L.A. criminal world undercurrent, right? Grounded in reality, street level, colors are kind of drabby. I have another hot take. It's more of a warm take, a lukewarm take, that the lighting in those earlier films, not very good, by the way. Like when I rewatch Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, it, they look like low-budget movies and the lighting. I wish, you know, someday Quentin could go and hire a better DP and, and have them look better. But that's what gives their those movies their early indie charm. But locations are street level. The tone is very muscular, right? Those three films, even with the bad lighting. Then, and I, and I think Jackie Brown was, and we're going to get into our ranking of, of the Tarantino canon at the latter end of this episode. Jackie Brown's high on my list, okay? And I, I think the movie was sort of considered a failure, Right. It wasn't it wasn't dogs. It wasn't pulp. It was a come down. It wasn't an original Tarantino script. He wrote a screenplay based on an Elmore Leonard novel, Rum Punch. And so first movie he did that wasn't really his story. And I, th- I thought it was a great film. I thought it was a great love story. But I think it just it didn't really connect maybe as well as it is. It could have in real time. It probably took on a life of its own later. So I think the critics were over him on that film a little bit. And then after that. Quentin goes on a bit of a break um, and his next film is Kill Bill volume one. And that's what 2003. So that's six years later. And it, it's with Kill Bill and everything else that's come after that. And I just, I want to make sure I capture this. It's like the cartoonish violence. It's, it's guys losing heads and limbs. You know, he creates these new universes, right? Very epic in feel. You could tell that there are much larger budgets at play, better, better DPs. 
um, alternate histories and realities. He starts getting into revisionist history with certain films and like really starts to explore new terrain. It's a very flashy, still very superb, but very much a pivot. And I kind of feel like I wonder if he did that as a way to like, fuck you, everybody. Fuck you, film critics, for not liking Jackie Brown. And I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And that he may have done it regardless, right? But, like, I just wonder, can you see how, like, the first three were, like, early of Quentin? Course. And then he went. So that sort of gets back to what you're talking about. So, so I – this is one of our agreement points. You and I have agreed for a long time that, that Jackie was an underappreciated, underrated movie. but be accurately it wasn't reservoir dogs and it wasn't pulp fiction it wasn't as revolutionary as those films it wasn't yeah. as um well written as those other films and yet if it was a first film that caliber that output was the same output for any other director, I think it would be a, a cherished movie, but, yeah. be, but because especially in Hollywood, they expect creative forces like Quentin is to continue to be the zeitgeist to that artistic exploration and new trend setting which he obviously was a trend setter and did so multiple times in his career. The only, the only shred of difference that I would say relative to what you said, because I love Kill Bill being that pivot point, is I actually see it as volume two being the pivot point and not volume one, not because, uh, what you described again isn't true. It is true. He was trying a completely different style, the cartoonish violence, et cetera, all the great points that you just mentioned. I just don't think he captured it as well as he wanted to capture it until volume two, which again, we'll get to our rankings, but you can start to see where I might have two relative to relative to one. You raised a really fascinating point about whether or not, you know, he writes visually and then the script script comes after that. You, I will even argue that the, his use of language, um, starting with Kill Bill and everything else after that, the way he wrote dialogue, which obviously we both know is one of his his master skills, um, probably his best skill. And you could argue is he starts going down this path of like very eloquent, very formal um, the language, the way the characters speak is almost not normal. And I, and I think, you know, and again, it's a movie, you could do whatever you want to do, but Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown, again, going back to this element of, of criminal thugs grounded in reality, they may be talking about really funny things like, you know, quarter pounder with cheese and, and all that stuff, but like, it's still very, um, they all spoke very matter of factly and a lot of language. And then, and then, and then I think when he starts doing other films later, they all start speaking with a certain cadence that's just a little bit more eloquent. I, I, you're so right. I, I think what Quentin is is masterful at is uh, tempo and temperament. So he is able to create a tempo of the dialogue that demonstrates those who are speaking 
these lines have a position of authority, a mastery of the subject that they are discussing from Madonna's catalog um, to uh, to hamburgers, right? I mean, whoever is is reciting these lines is coming off as though they have dedicated time and thought to having a real well-versed opinion. I, I think he does that so well that it almost automatically creates depth of character that he is writing. So now all of a sudden you've got a hitman thug, but you're like, this guy is so capable of having that well thought out of a perspective on a topic that, that he must be an elite thinker, elite at his field, and yet has chosen to take that field on. And so now you're like, why, why is that person taking that field on? They're so complex. They're so rich. They're so robust. And, and his ability to do that in one scene, one monologue to create that rapid of a tempo of development of a full spectrum of temperament that can come from this character. It was one of the things he demonstrated so early that people uh, recognize you've got it. You've got a genius here. You've got something special. So Lance, let's establish a baseline having a lot of fun already. Um, <laughs> Me too. Which color would you have chosen if you were part of Joe Cabot's gang? So let's just get that out of the way. Are you kidding me? I, I'm not going to be Mr. Pink. I, I am not going to argue with Joe. I would have guessed what name he were to have given me. Uh, naturally, to play into the hand of the movie, I think he would have given me Mr. Black. Everybody wants to be Mr. Black. It, it, precisely. Precisely. If he would have seen something in me, he would have been like, that guy deserves it. Black is badass, right? So are you basically Black saying you're badass? badass? I'd like, I, if I wrote a character for myself in a movie, I'd like to think that I would make myself considerably more badass than I actually am. And I think Quentin does that with his cameos. Some of his yeah. uh, appearances make him uh, probably much hipper than he, than he actually is in, in real life. Mr. Black's a great answer. I think a lot of people would probably give that answer. So let's talk and what, about how... Hold on. What would, what would be your color? I thought about this a little differently, that if, if I, was, I was in charge of giving myself my own color, I probably would go with like a... I, I kind of feel like Mr. Gray... Might, oh, might work kind of nice. That so, makes so much sense. It does for numerous reasons. I want to talk about how Quentin Tarantino entered our lives. Okay, so obviously, first film is 1992. He had he had been writing a little bit before then, but I guess my first question is this: Did you see all his films sequentially, like I did, or did you like a lot of people? Which it pains me to say, I shudder to think that a lot of people saw Reservoir Dogs after they saw Pulp Fiction. This is where you have to cut me a little bit of slack. Okay? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. This is where our age difference actually comes into play, Dennis. I was 14 years old when Reservoir Dogs came out. I did not have um, movie aficionados as parents or really – influencers in my life, I 
I had a mother who was great at, at, at exposing me to some music, but I had to find Columbia House and BMG catalog, you know, buy 12 CDs. And I had to discover music on my own relative to other artists. Uh, and I did the same with film, but I did so just like the Beatles opened up music for me. It was Quentin and Pulp Fiction that opened it up for me. And I went backwards unfortunately, to watch Reservoir Dogs before moving forward. I will say, though, that I didn't also hit every movie in sequence. Um, I missed um, Death Proof, uh, which I was okay not seeing that in real time. Um, but we, we, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll get there, too. I'm sure we'll get there, too. That was like a year before you and I met each other. How could you be okay with not seeing that in real time? That is okay. All right. Um, I get you. I get you on the age. I get you on the age thing. That makes total sense, and that is a fair, fair argument. So you saw. Would you? Would you remember like how how much later it was that you saw Dogs after Pulp Fiction? Was it pretty quickly? Like, I mean, this was this was characteristic of how I approach things, right? Like, I would I would get a greatest hits album from someone, and then I would go typically learn their entire catalog from the from the start if i if i found them to be fascinating so as soon as i learned of quentin and learned that there was a movie that came out before pulp i got as quickly as possible my hands on a vha vhs tape uh and watched it obsessively obsessively um and got partially angry about it i i and and this was this was the miss of watching pulp first because i was i was like oh well this both deteriorates reservoir dogs for me a little bit cuz and we'll get into this i didn't think it was as good as pulp but it deteriorated pulp a little bit because i'm like he's done some of these methods before reservoir was the OG. And so he was repeating some of his methods. It wasn't as blow my mind, uh, a path, uh, carving as I thought it was, which by the way, happens all the time, right? Like all of a sudden you get turned into not to keep going back to music, but you get turned into turn out of blues music or you get turned on to the stones and you're like, well, now you have to go back to muddy waters. And then you get turned on muddy waters and you're like, well, now you got to go back to Robert Johnson. Like there was always someone who came before. And so uh, that's what's, that's what's super exciting about, about Tarantino. And what I, that I, I got to erase the disappointment by just saying, this guy's teaching me film. And, and yeah. I want to go look up all the pop culture references that he drops, because I don't even think he's just a, a movie aficionado. I think he was a deep cut pop culture expert. Reservoir Dogs only made $3 million worldwide when it came out. So not a lot of people saw it in the theater. But isn't it amazing that going back to what you said a little while ago about him being a visual storyteller, right? I mean, some of the some of his later films, Lance, the way he frames certain shots and, 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 and I mean beautiful, beautiful cinematography and like great composition. I mean, you you could you could spend an hour and a half talking about um Inglorious Bastards and the way how brilliant oh. brilliantly that film is shot. But isn't it amazing to me that like everybody saw Reservoir Dogs on VHS, except for those few lucky people that happened to go see it in the theater in 1992. I wasn't one of those. I had a, I had a buddy of mine at college who we were in this film committee 
together, of course. And, um, and he was like talking about this movie and he's like, Reservoir Dogs. I'm like, shut up already. Like, I, I haven't seen it, you know? And he's like, I really need you to see it. So I remember checking it out the VHS with some shitty, like low grade VHS company that put that movie out. And I watched it and like, I was sort of blown away by it. But the fact that like his movies are so cinematic yet my first time experiencing him as a director was on VHS is painful. When you're seeing it on the big screen, it becomes all encompassing. You can't help a good film. You can't help but feel the entirety of the energy that the director intended with a film in a theater. Sound system, size, just by by the sheer math of it. And that movie brought some real intensity with it. And 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 I I heard um, I heard in a story that I think it was it was. Right, it was it was played at Sundance. Um, that's where it got yep. its its big kind of break. But I heard there were lots of people that actually walked. I heard a story that a lot of people actually walked out of the the film, including uh, there was a director, uh, Wes Craven, I think it was, that walked that walked out of the film. Now I I read later that he walked out, um, but. Uh, but what? But didn't didn't want it to be seen as a sign of not liking the movie. It was a sign that it was so intense that he had to remove himself from the situation. Now, whether that's a, a PR cover up or or the reality, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd have to imagine it's reality. I, I don't see how you see that movie and think this is such a terrible movie that I that I have to leave before it's over. It has to be because you can't handle the intensity of it. I'm going to, I'll, I'll answer this one first and then I want you to have an answer. But the moment that you fell in love with Tarantino. So mm. like for me, I, I did see his film sequentially. So again, I got you on age. I was in a fortunate position that I, I was able to see all his films as they came out. They were all sort of moments for me and like markers. And like, I really, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to see his, his career unfold the way I did. But I remember when I watched Reservoir Dogs, and again, crappy VHS, I'm watching it probably on my little shitty TV at home. And I remember after the opening sequence, when these guys are sitting around the table, they're talking about tipping and they're talking about Madonna and all that stuff. And all of a sudden, um, Stephen Wright comes on as, <laughs> as, the, as the DJ for K. Billy. And, and then, you know, and these, these guys are walking down. Um, they're doing the slow-mo. They're all walking across that, that brick wall, which everybody's copied. It's not that. But when when it finally says Reservoir Dogs, the title the title comes up, and then all of a sudden the the, the various credits are rolling upwards, which you never see. And when I saw that, I was like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> like I, I was literally, I'm still laughing from like Mr. Pink talking about tipping, and you know Toby, Toby, all the stuff that's going on in that first Toby sequence. Wong, Blair, Toby, Toby Wong, fucking Charlie Chan, <laughs> all of it, right? And then like the credits start, and they start going upwards, and I'm like, "This guy, wow, this guy is like, he knew what he was doing, he knew his music cues." He knew what he was doing. And like that, I was in, that was it. It was like literally the opening credits of Reservoir Dogs. I fell in love with Quentin Tarantino. So I I got, I got to pull a few threads here. So, so one of which is I I still think, even though you didn't see it in the theater, you have to be one of the few people that actually saw his career sequentially. You have to be, I know it became a cult hit and it started to pick up following fast, but even then you had to have been into the movie scene to have caught, 
to have gone out of your way to get the copy. I mean, it wasn't like there were copies of this at every, at the time, you know, blockbuster or whatever you had to, you yeah. had to scope it out and see it. Cause it got released. It was probably like 18 months before Pulp Fiction came out. Cause what, that was 94. So it had to have been like 18 yeah. months once it hit VHS to actually seeing it. You had to have been one of the, one of the few people to actually see those. So kudos kudos to you I, I don't feel so bad i am playing the age card but you're one of, you're one of the you're one of the few that were able to to actually say that and so the fact that you got to be hooked that early is ex, is extraordinary i will i will tell you because of seeing pulp fiction first i got i was in on reservoir dogs earlier than even the credits and it was it was him starting the dialogue before you saw the people. Yep. The dialogue is going. So he he's setting this tone. He's forcing you to use your ears. You have to listen to this dialogue. Don't pay attention to all the nuances that you're going to see on screen yet. Right? Not yet. Realize that I, Quentin, am establishing character here and i have to do it quickly you have to start to fall in love with these thugs with these crooks very quickly or you may miss the wave for the rest of the film you might yep and i thought such a i mean he thinks about it he thought about every single detail but to to start the dialogue before you see any visuals to me was, was just again, demonstration of, of command of the craft. And I'm like, this is going to be a ride. I'm in, I'm, I'm strapped in. I mean, you jump ahead a year later, Pulp Fiction is about to come out. Right. So I'm now, I'm now working my first job in my, in my career. Um, I worked at a celebrity PR firm in New York and uh, we handled pretty big, pretty big, you know, clients. We had Julia Roberts and Woody Harrelson and Rob Reiner and, and people like that. But I remember our intern who was going to NYU film school, he comes in one day and he's like, he's like, dude, he's like, I guess what I've got in my bag. And I'm like, I may have told you this before. I'm like, what do you got? And he's like, I've got the screenplay for Pulp Fiction. And he takes it out. And it's like this, I mean, really thick, really, I mean, it's 100, 180 pages. The movie was long. And he's like, you want me to make you a Xerox? I'm like, yes. So <laughs> right. he, he, makes me, he makes me a Xerox of it. And I knew this movie had been at that moment, I think it was being filmed. And I, I hop on Metro North. I was commuting from Connecticut at the time, long, long day. And I read Pulp Fiction on a Friday night on the way back to Connecticut from um, Grand Central. And I, Lance, when I'm, I'm sitting there reading it on the train, I'm like laughing out loud, literally. And like people are like looking at me like, what's what's wrong with this guy? And, and I'm like, I think I've read most of the script on the train ride. It was a long read. I probably didn't finish it. But I remember getting halfway through it and Vincent Vega gets killed. And I'm, yeah. and I, and I'm like, I'm like, what, what's happening here? Like this, I love this guy. And all of a sudden this guy just gets blown away by Bruce Willis. And I'm like, this is crazy. So I, I read it. I read it again that weekend. Um, and this is now, this is like mid 93. Okay. So the movie is not coming out for another year. For the rest, for the next twelve months, I am telling anybody in my life, in my circle of people, 
you are you need to see this movie Pulp Fiction when it comes out. It's Quentin Tarantino's second film, and everybody was like, "Dennis, enough! Just like let's move on." Like I'm tired, of, I'm tired, I'm tired of it. And sure as hell, though, that movie came out that October of '94, and I dragged my brother opening night. I was like, "We are seeing this movie, and this movie is going to be a big, big deal." And I just couldn't wait. It was like one of the I remember like it was yesterday, and like so like that was probably like the other moment that I think I probably fell in love with Tarantino is when I read Pulp Fiction on the train, it was just like, I was like, this is, this guy is wow. So I, I, I gotta, I gotta recant back something that you just said, which is now let's, let's rattle off your, your Tarantino claims to fame. Uh, you, you saw everything sequentially, which means you were early in on res. You got a copy of the script before Pulp Fiction came out and you saw Pulp Fiction on opening night. There has to be no more than a few hundred people at most that can claim all three of those things. So I can say, I, can, can I, can, can I yeah, add one more? Of course you can. Of course and, you can. And, then I, and then then you finish your thought. I also, because Woody Harrelson was a client of ours, I got a copy of the original Tarantino script of Natural Born Killers. Oh my goodness. So I also read that, you know, on the train or whatever. You know, this was the version that Tarantino had before Oliver Stone acquired it. Oliver Stone butchered it, which he did. Um, Lance, if you ever read it, you would be like, you would be angry to realize what Oliver Stone did to that script. Which is amazing because I, and you are, might yell at me at this, I really enjoyed that movie. I, I don't think it delivered, I always felt, it didn't deliver on the level that it 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 felt like it had untapped potential that it didn't hit on all its marks and yet even without hitting on all its marks it was a powerful and worthwhile uh film and, and a very strong artistic uh expression so um so I, I i i have not read the script that that adds to your credibility and that was my my finishing thought on that which is so we're talking tarantino with you know one of one of the early, one of the most dedicated fans. We have, a, you know, you're an authority on on the subject, and so I feel I feel honored to get to dance with you on the topic. It's uh, it's pretty fun. Where does he rank on your list of favorite directors? I, I I this is the unfortunate part. I'm gonna sound like a homer. He's number one for me. I I can't I cannot. Is he really? I, he, I wasn't sure if you were going to say that. I he, wasn't he, sure. But here, here's he he quite literally changed the way that I viewed film. He 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 was the spark that caused me to have a different lens on film and a different expectation from film. That it's okay to challenge the arc it doesn't need to go you know um the way that it always has uh and that like you called out with vincent you can challenge time you can challenge lighting you can challenge sound and sound editing you can challenge the emotions people are used to feeling inside a theater and from that point on I was seeking that that type of art. It didn't always have to equal that type of greatness, 
but I was seeking filmmakers who were brave enough to create their own style by challenging that which became came before them. And and to uh, to quote, I think it was Picasso. Maybe it's mis- uh, attributed to him. But good artists borrow, great artists steal. You know these folks were dedicated to their craft, dedicated to movies. And so some of what they were inspired by obviously is going to come out. I don't know these directors' inspirations as well enough. I don't know them well enough by any stretch of imagination to know whether it's an original or it's a uh, a play on something someone did before. It's not as black and white as a song where you're like, yeah, well, that was a remake of of the song. This This is could be a tribute. It could be an adaptation. It could be an original idea. That's, that's what I'm not as well versed in, in the depth of the, the encyclopedic knowledge of film of these, of these directors, but he, he's what instilled that, that appreciation and desire for film and, and content that translated over. And I'm sure you're going to get to this, that translated over into television. I mean, the type of character development hat and the, the demonstration that from a business perspective, people were willing to see and and pay for that type of character development film, that type of non-normal, non-popularized film. They're willing to pay for that. And that had to have been some of the business case that sparked Sopranos on HBO, which I believe was some of the television that ultimately changed how we view, you know, again, how we view television and content and video, not just on the big screen, but the small screen as well. Totally agree. I, th- I think one of the things I found fascinating in reading the the novelization of, of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is he talks about um, Roman Polanski, right? I know Roman Polanski's not, not an easy topic today for numerous reasons, but back in the day, you know, and obviously he's a he's a key character in the film because he's living with Sharon Tate at the time, married to Sharon Tate at the time and lives next door to Rick Dalton. Um, but like he was making the point that at that point in time, coming off of Rosemary's Baby, Roman Polanski is kind of like the the first rock star director. Right. That's in Hollywood. Um, everybody wanted to be in business with this guy. You know, Stanley Kubrick had been making movies at that point, but I wouldn't call Kubrick a rock star necessarily. He's brilliant, but not. Not a rock star, but you know, I think the next one that comes along, in my opinion, probably is, you know, it's probably Spielberg in the seventies, right? You know, he yeah. became like this one wonder kind, did Jaws, and really kind of, you know, could do what he, whatever, whatever he wanted after that. Not many. There's, there's not many else. You know, there, I mean, I think that the Coen brothers, I wouldn't call them rock stars, although they certainly are probably number one for me. Um, but I, but I, Tarantino is. It's, it could be debated, the ranking there. But, you know, and then Quentin, right? So, like, then Tarantino comes along in, in the early 90s and to this day is still, I mean, do you think he's, like, the coolest director working? No, I don't. Uh, I I don't see Tarantino defined as cool. I think he created cool, and he was able to, again, be a zeitgeist for really cool things but he himself as a director i think he's i think he's geeky which is what makes him so uh relatable as a director i mean the fact that he you saw you see like it i didn't think he was the cool guy in high school i didn't think he was a cool guy in college he was the guy who's like i'm gonna watch as much film as possible 
I'm going to dedicate myself to craft as much as possible. I'm not going to get sidetracked. It's not, it's like, it's not that dissimilar from an athlete that, you know, a, a figure skater, for example, that has started four and has to, ref, you know, refine their craft by the age of 2022, because that's, that's where you have to start establishing yourself. If you're going to get on this kind of genius level trajectory and, or, or Hendrix in guitar, or you can, you can continue to go along the, the, the types of, of physical or artistic expression that require that level of concentration and focus and time. So I don't think he could have been the cool kid. What I think though, is that he was able to become again, to overuse a word encyclopedic uh, in his knowledge of what was cool, right? He knew the context. He studied the context of the films that came be, uh, uh, before him that moved him. What was, what were, what was the director feeling? What was the emotional wave or thread that the director was trying to capitalize that was going on in the country, in the world, in the city that they were focusing on in the people that they were, they were trying to uh, 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 depict in, in the, in the film on the screen. And so I don't, I don't see him as cool, but I see him birthing the next generation of cool and cool directors. I think I think he knows that he's cool, right? Because he's he's kind of he's become like this rock star director, right? One of the things I've noticed as a marketer, and when his movies come out, he because I know he made he made this announcement a few years ago that he's going to stop making movies at number ten and he's going to move on to do other things, and and maybe maybe he will. Um, sad for us if he does stop making movies because the guy obviously is is kind of at the peak of his powers. Um, if if Hollywood has anything to do with it, um, but when when they promoted Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It, it was the tagline or the trailer or whatever it was. It said something about the ninth film from Quentin Tarantino. Right. And I did not like that. I did right. not like that at all. Cause that's like, you're basically saying that your movies are so precious. You've only done nine of them is as good as they've been. Okay. But like, except for hateful eight, um, which we're going to get into, but like, I, I, I just didn't like that. It's and maybe that's Sony pictures marketing that's in charge of that. But like, I don't like the fact that he's calling attention to himself that way. Like I don't, you know, I don't need to be told this is your ninth movie. I know it's your ninth movie. Don't tell me it's your ninth movie. That's it. I'll, I'll jump oh, off the soapbox. No, no, no. This is this is a worthwhile topic, and it's not going to be a long one. The the first off, you are you are certainly more well versed than I am, but I I by no means know how you get to nine being the films that he has done so far. All right, so I have a different count, and we'll get into that. That I think he's done more than nine films. Okay, so so he's he's on an uncredited writer. He is a cinematographer. He's been a writer, non-director. He's been partial director. So how you even define he's done nine films is is a, a topic we're going to have to get into because if we're going to do a ranking, we have to define which films we're actually ranking. But <laughs> I I think I don't I feel the same thing you do. I think he knows he became cool. And that cognition of him makes it less cool. And I think his worst cameo, which I'm now hating on, was Death Proof because he tried to he, that in that moment. I think he's like, I am cool, and it's like, no, you're a great cameo. Like I, I still think he was wonderful in Res, but I still truly loved him in Pulp. And I'm like, he doesn't, he doesn't know quite yet. His impact. He knows how good he is. He knows how good he is, but he hasn't truly become one of the cool kids yet. And it kept him grounded. And, and I think he had to figure out how to 
ditch that to get back to being as good of a director and writer as we wanted him to be. And, and I think he had a couple of those periods in his life, which I think ended up coming out in, in two of his less creative, less groundbreaking movies. Look, there's still movies that I'd put on and would rank above some of the best work of other directors out there, but relative, relative to, to Quentin movies, they're down, they're down. And, and, and again, we'll get into the ranking, but they're not, they're not his best work, right? Not all your work can be your best work, but it's, it's some of those movies um, missed what made him so special. And I think it was probably outside circumstances that were creating, creating those, those hurdles. I think, I think the moment that I realized that he became this rock star was, it was actually another cameo that he made that he was in. I'm not sure if you saw the movie Desperado with Antonio Banderas. Oh, I um, love, I love that movie. He, he come, Oh, it's a phenomenal movie. The Kamlik brothers, big fans of Desperado. Shout out to my brother. And, um, but there's that scene when he comes in and he tells that joke to Cheech Marin at the bar and, and like, you know, and like it's it was this you know and that was the only scene of the movie that he's in obviously he's he's buddies with the director robert rodriguez and and uh it was great it was a great it was a great cameo a very funny scene but like that was the moment for me when i realized all right tarantino has become a brand he is he is now like the guy yep. that can actually pop pop in desperado for two and a half minutes and kind of own the move the movie for a moment before he leaves but but let's so. let's let's call him that then so if you are the brand and Hollywood is banking on you. A lot of people have jobs as a result of you. A lot of money is is made, and especially coming up in a time where Hollywood, you know, the rules of Hollywood, the way that Hollywood worked, is not is not the same anymore, right? You've got folks like Amazon and Netflix who are earning quite a bit more and worth quite a bit more than your standard studios. So, the, so the the players have changed, the rules have changed, and I think. So this is why I agreed that he had that character flaw, whether it be permanent or temporary. Who who knows? And everyone's got character flaws, and and so I'm not I'm not knocking him on that. I'm just calling it what it was. I think it's I think his way of saying the ninth film might be actually in some way almost altruistic, like signaling to the market, signaling to everyone who's relying on him. Like, look, I'm. Um, I got to hang up the sneakers at, at some point because this is tiring or, or maybe I haven't fulfilled, you know, if I'm Quentin, maybe I haven't fulfilled all of my own personal dreams and I've got, I, I'm, a, I'm a gifted artist. Maybe there are other artistic expressions that I want to see if I could be equally as gifted at. And so I'm, I'm signaling to you guys that, that this, this has been, uh, you know, brilliant, but, but, you know, I got to get on my way. Reservoir Dogs. Let's get some fast facts out of the way. Shot in 30 days. In the summer of 91, um, $1.2 million budget. Uh, the budget was so low that many of the actors were actually asked to bring their own clothes, um, including Chris Penn's nice guy, Eddie blue track jacket, which was Chris Penn's jacket, which I didn't, I didn't realize. Phenomenal. On top of dress pants, by the way, dress pants and dress shoes. It debuted to what you said earlier. It debuted at Sundance in January of 92, um, it opened in, in October of that year. So it opened much later, but it was the talk of the festival. Um, everybody was raving about Reservoir Dogs, yet it went home empty handed. Hmm. Um, the Water Dance, which is a film with Eric Stoltz, won the audience and screenwriting awards that year. Interestingly enough, I actually wrote about that movie for my school paper, but nobody's talking about the Water Dance. Have you thought about the Water Dance much lately? I, I've never, I've never even heard of it. So my, my question is, did it, did it capture a moment in time? Some films get more, 
um, critic love because they just happen to catch a moment of time and that time doesn't last. And so the, the film doesn't last. Whereas Tarantino was, was starting a new, a new momentum, a new wave of energy behind film. And, and very rarely does that initial catalyst have the opportunity to be as recognized as the final output on the wave. So um, was, was that the film that won, did, was that capturing a moment or not? Pulp Fiction won the Palme d'Or at, at Cannes Con, in 94. Yeah. Yeah. So clearly, you know, maybe, maybe it was a little bit tough for Tarantino not to win Sundance, but certainly uh, he got his moment a year and a half later. So from what I read, Tarantino was originally going to make this movie with his producer buddy, Lawrence Bender, who en- ended up producing some of his films. Um, it sounded like Tarantino had like 30 grand in his pocket. He made a bunch of, he played an Elvis impersonator in an episode of the golden girls. And I guess he got a bunch of residuals for that. So he took this 30 grand and he had a 16 millimeter camera and he and Lawrence Bender were going to make this movie together. It sounded like um, Quentin was going to play Mr. Pink. And uh, Bender was going to play nice guy, Eddie. And I guess they were going to just get some of their buddies to round out the cast. Right. So here's what happens. And you, you probably know this. Lawrence Bender was going to an acting class and his acting teacher's wife knew Harvey Keitel. Um, she gives the script to Keitel. He calls up to Quentin three days later and he's like, look, I'm in. Consider me in. Not only do I want to do it. I want to be one of the producers. I will help you get this made. Whatever you need me to do, let me know. It's a it's an incredible story. I I uh, I also also heard that he wrote the original version of the script in like two and a half or three and a half weeks, something absurd. Uh, and then and then it was Kaitel that helped him ultimately raise what was it like one point two million dollars? So the film, even though it only made was it like close to three million dollars, ended up being a very profitable film given the amount of work that that went into it yeah i mean the facts on this thing just goes to show how how much thought went into this movie before it ultimately had to be made and or how fluent combination maybe the two how fluent tarantino is in film filmmaking script writing setting things up that he could do it that fast on that kind of a budget and I and I wonder whether or not some of those constraints, like budget, like time, like available talent, is what ultimately allowed Tarantino to be that much greater and demonstrate his greatness relative to other filmmakers. Like, look, in just a little bit of time with a little bit of of money. I could produce something like this, and and the one more another analogy. Uh, I I heard Seth Godin. I think both of us read him, marketing expert. He, he was he was talking about constraints, and he related to to hockey, and he said hockey wouldn't be hockey if it wasn't for the boards, and it's actually the boards that changes the entire game. That those who figure out how to bounce it off the wall, can understand the angles that it's going to, the puck is going to bounce off the wall, how to use the confined space to figure out passes that can't be defended, et cetera, end up being able to demonstrate their greatness that much more because everyone's playing by the same constraints. And here's Quinton who is playing by these constraints and is able to blow everyone else out of the water 
And so I, I, I had a question for you, Dennis, in, in response to this kind of story. And, and I hope you don't mind me asking you a question on your podcast. Did the actors make the movie or did the script make the actors? And then did the movie make the acting careers, right? Like, I, you know, you, and the reason why I ask this question is because Travolta wasn't, Travolta wasn't doing shit. Sam Jackson really wasn't doing shit. And then this movie demonstrated how great they were and it revitalized like decade long careers. And the same thing. And, and I said, because those guys were known at one point before getting renowned by, by pulp and, and Ky- you know, Kaitel was known before. I mean, it was always known, but this, this pretty is, well known. He was pretty yeah, well known at that. Yeah, point. but yeah. this this still goes down as like one of his. You know, working with Quentin goes down as his like best work. So, is it is Quentin like playing with Jordan and and he made everyone else you know look like Scottie Pippen or or were they really that good? And because his script was that good, all the 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 cream rises to the top and the best actors were so magnetically drawn to this script that it all just, you know, they all went to, to work on it together. They all went to, to where the puck was going. That is a fascinating question. I mean, I, I think the writer in me, because, you know, I've, I've, I love to write myself and like, I think, you know, it starts with the material and obviously the material got Kaitel's attention very quickly. And that's how, that's kind of how it escalated. But I think you look at, the kind of the kind of actors. Listen, I mean, I, I can't even speak to how the audition process must be. I'm sure they talked to a bunch of people. I mean, I know that like Samuel L. Jackson had, um, you know, he he had tried for the, to get into this movie. Ving Rhames tried to get into this movie, but neither of them were, were chosen. But yeah, I, I do think that obviously, listen, actors take material and elevate them to other ways that a writer would never never even imagine, right? Because like that, that's the beauty of acting is that an actor is going to take it and interpret it in the, their way. The director is obviously going to try to get what what kind of performance they want to get out of it. But um, but I do think it comes back to the source material. And I think that gets kind of like, I guess the question I was going to ask you tied to that is like, what makes Reservoir Dogs work so well? Mm. Like, you know, obviously great script, right? I'm not even talking about the script. I'm not necessarily talking about the story. But what is it? What was it about that film that connected the way it did? Like, why why did it create a massive career for Quentin Tarantino? Because it did. So, like, what what was it to you that makes the movie work? I think the simplistic demonstration of artistic genius to the point where everyone who sees that film can see it as genius is is near is near impossible some people are so genius and they and they can't express it to the point where many relate to it i i actually find that's both the genius and the flaw of the academy awards right what ends up ultimately being nominated for for most films um not yep. not really box office smashes and and the average person doesn't actually love it but but quentin was actually able to cross the chasm in his challenging of the arc in his challenging of the standard norms of of pace of dialogue in his challenging 
where the, what you need to see. I mean, in, in one of the opening scenes of, uh, or I think it was maybe the second, second scene or third scene, whatever it was in Reservoir Dogs, they're in the warehouse. They're in the warehouse. Tim is, is uh, laying on the ground. Harvey and Steve are in the, in the background, but that's what you're watching. And, and, and Mr. Pink, Steve Buscemi, he goes off camera. And he's talking because they're in the bathroom. Yeah. You can't see everything. That is so real life. Like what that's demonstrated was we're getting a glimpse into this real world. Like he made you think this was really happening. And we only get to see a fraction of what's happening because in no real circumstance do you ever get to see everything that's going on. You get to hear what's going on, but you get to see everything. That nuance, that that craft, that little difference to say, I'm going to move the camera back and allow Buscemi to go off camera, and and I'm going to and I'm going to own that. That's actually what intentionally what I want people to to notice is different is genius, and it's just such a slight expression. And he does it scene after scene, time after time. Right? One, one more, one more, and then I'll shut up. I promise. But one more on this was. You want to have a rock and roll soundtrack. You want to demonstrate that you know music better than other people. You know how to score films better than other people. And and you decide to layer in K Billy Supersound, right? Like like what is that? Like why on earth would you why would you do that? Honestly, why would you do that? You never see Stephen Wright, right? You 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 don't understand so much like what is this radio station? Here's this monotone comedian that sounds awful. You're like, this guy is not a DJ, but I guess he is a DJ. And then you're like, well, maybe he could be a DJ. And you're now, li- and that's how the, 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 the songs are brought to you. And it becomes this common thread through the whole film that unifies these people and make these again, crooks and thugs, relatable people. I, that's genius. It's genius. It is genius. I mean, Lance, these are really purposeful decisions. I mean, like for him to like, I read, so this, the shot in the sequence where Mr. Blonde is torturing the cop, Marvin Nash, he's, he's about to cut his ear off. Um, but at the beginning of that, he's like kind of talking to him a little bit. Um, but he went, he goes out to get the gas can. You remember that? So like there's this, of course. He, put, he, put, he puts on the music, right? He puts on Steeler's wheel stuck in the middle with you, Jerry yeah. Rafferty, which apparently um, the entire soundtrack budget was spent on getting that song. Um, the, and the only reason they got the other songs is that they made a soundtrack deal that allowed them to play the other, the other songs in the film. But so he puts that song on, right. Which is iconic. Then there's that shot where Mr. Blonde leaves the warehouse, the camera's behind him and he opens up the door and all of a sudden that blast of like blue light comes in, right. Cause he's going out to the, the middle of the uh, m- middle of suburbia and wherever in LA that they are. He goes to his car. The music stops. You don't hear the car anymore. You don't hear the music anymore. Now you see you're with Mr. Blonde. He's walking to his trunk. You hear birds. Like it's just like a middle of a random fucking Tuesday or whatever it is. He gets the gas can. He comes back in. He goes back through the warehouse and then the music starts to come back. Right. That shot, apparently Tarantino's favorite sequence in the entire movie. It's not surprising at all. The, the, The reason why it's not surprising is because, again, tempo he's he's got all the characters on a timeline where even if they're not on screen where are they and what are they doing 
So when Mr. Blind walks outside, Tarantino doesn't forget that the music is still playing in the warehouse. Right. Exactly. And the, and the sound editing alignment that comes together because Mr. Blonde is now walking in, it, it parallels real life. That's actually how real life works. And it's those small little nuances that makes the film feel real. And, and, the, elimina- and the elimination of, of notes and details, too. You never see the heist. The whole thing centers on the heist. You never see it. You see people running. Look, this gets back to the constraint point I was trying to make, right? You're constrained. You can't get every song you would want to put in this movie. I'm sure he had 101 other songs he would have put in this movie if he had the budget. So he doesn't. So he says, I don't have that kind of money. I need to pull deep into the catalog of my understanding of music that would unite these people. They're all probably at the time, their late 20s, 30s, this movie's supposed to take place so-and-so, which means they were probably listening and their music listening heyday was in the 70s. So I got to go deep into that, into that catalog to find music that no one's really going to care if I use it in a film. So it's not going to cost me money. But how do I actually put these songs together in a way that makes sense for them all to be in a film and not to just sound like a random collection of music. It is, I'm going to, I'm going to create K Billy super sounds of the seventies, right? It's these, it's these constraints that allowed his, again, his nuanced and expansive thinking to be demonstrably uh, uh, visible and, and, and unify the person watching the film to the film itself. Those choices that he makes, I don't, there's not many filmmakers that make those sorts of choices that you can pinpoint them as an audience and be like, Hey, that's clearly Tarantino being Tarantino. I would say the Coen brothers absolutely do that. They do yep. that brilliantly. Wes um, Anderson I, I, does that. Wes Anderson does that. There's, there's a few, there's a few, I would say Soderbergh does that to an extent on certain films as well. But like, Going back to what you said about the heist, I mean, that's that's exactly if, if I had to boil down Reservoir Dogs to what works so well about that movie. What I would say is this. I would say it's it's effortlessly cool and obviously a great deal of effort got put into it. But as a viewer, it just feels like Tarantino was just like born to make this film and to make these sorts of decisions. And you're just you're just you're in as soon as it starts, as I said earlier, with the credits going up the screen. So totally cool. But to have a heist movie without showing the heist in the hands of other directors, they, they would show the heist. And the fact that he doesn't show the heist is what makes that movie brilliant. I mean, like, cause you have to then pretend in your head, like you have to visualize Lance Neuhauser. You have to decide like what that diamond exchange sequence must've been like when, when Mr. Blonde started shooting everybody, like what the hell happened there? But we never get to see that. And, and he leads it to our imagination. The only other movie that like, I would say that even like, it doesn't even come close in terms of like a heist, but like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which actually came out the same year in 92. Should probably talk about that movie too. <laughs> Another heist movie without the heist. You don't see it. Exactly. You know, and I think it's this, but I, I would say like the mark of Tarantino's movies, and he does this in a lot of his films, it's this nonlinear storytelling. I mean, it is a trademark that has been done before him, but certainly he took it to other levels that I don't think maybe a lot of mainstream moviegoers were used to seeing. And this notion of like, I've read this great quote that I want to read. He said, um, I actually think that if movies were to follow closer the rules for novels, they would benefit. In the transition from novels to movies, one of the first things that goes is the structure. Chronological order isn't the only way you can tell a story. Novels go back and forth all the time. 
And I mean, I mean, look at all his movies. I mean, I mean, there's not many that he's done that don't jump around in time, right? It, it gets back to what you opened with when you were talking about where he drew his inspiration. Uh, you know, it was a it was a good anecdote. I wasn't familiar with with his infatuation with the the novelized version of the films until you told me about it. You told me about it before we got onto this this podcast. So I've known about it for a little bit, but I I didn't know that. And when when you start to you know, this is what it comes down to any art, right? To really understand the art that's being put out by the artist, you have to understand the influences of that of that individual. And he dedicated himself to the whole of the movies he watched. We we touched on a couple of those pieces, not just the not just the art of the movie itself, but what went into the context of the movie and the constraints of the movie and the type, I mean, he's a film aficionado, not like movie, but like film, what type of film they use, the machinery that was necessary. Um, and then uh, of course it extended it all the way out to um, uh, the novels, the after the wrap up in, in what was, you know, you called it a, a butchered fashion, but still helped him, helped him further comprehend the film itself. I mean, he's all in. The, the dichotomy of him having Mr. Blonde torture this cop, right? Which is obviously the famous scene from the film. He cuts off his ear, right? We as a viewer don't see the ear get cut off, right? We see the ear later. The fact that he made that choice as a director to take the camera, pan away, and it goes up towards the ceiling for a minute. You know what's happening, which is gruesome and horrific. And again, meanwhile, the dichotomy, as I said, you're listening to Steeler's Wheel. There's this great thing that he said about, I wanted to go for the super sugary 70s bubblegum sound. One, because some people are annoyed by it. And two, because I grew up with it. The sugariness of it, the catchiness of it, lightens up a rude, rough movie. And so he made that choice that this is going to be a rude, rough scene, getting this guy tortured, and he's going to play that song. That's... It's not a lot of filmmakers, Lance, that make those kinds of decisions. Not then, certainly not then. I think it's it's become more more common now. Um, you know, there's a there's a scene from uh, Almost Famous, um, and you know, Crow's Crow's a pretty good director him, himself. Uh, where uh, William Miller, that's where I was going. William, William Miller, William, yes. William Miller's watching Penny Lane heave into uh the bathtub and i think it's elton john's uh mona lisa's mona lisa's and matt hatters is playing which is a a light love song and he's watching this go on and i i i agree i i think um i think that was a huge call maybe i'm reading into it a little bit i i thought i thought the lyrics also meant something and maybe he didn't mean it maybe he did but he's, he's so calculated i thought you know effectively it was the cop who was stuck in the middle of this this War, this game that was being played between at that moment, uh, Mr. Orange and Mr. Blonde, and he knew as it came out that Orange was a cop. He already knew him, and he couldn't say it. He knew he was he was getting tortured, and the guy is right there in the room, and so he can't rat him out. And he's seeing this psychopath come his way, and he is he is stuck in the middle of this situation. Let's take a quick break. And then uh, we're going to try to wrap this thing up. And we may go longer than the running time of Reservoir Dogs, but probably not by much. Uh, quick break. This episode of Back by Popular Demand is sponsored by our good friends at the Waffle Company, the first ever get and give pet bed company in the world, which means for every bed sold, they donate a bed to a shelter dog in need. You know, I have to admit something. 
I have become that guy who basically uses social media to simply post pictures of my dogs. It's true. Sure, I may plug this podcast across social time to time and have been known to express my disappointment in another unwanted Hollywood reboot. I can't believe they are remaking Roadhouse. But let's be honest, what I enjoy doing most is posting adorable pictures of my two boxers. And most of those photos feature my girls lounging on their waffle beds. Waffle beds are made with organic cotton canvas and filled with pure K-pop cotton, which is lightweight, hypoallergenic, and eco-friendly. And the beds come with two washable exterior layers that are very easy to reassemble once clean. We all love our dogs, and if you like watching them sleep just like I do, get them a waffle. By doing so, you're ensuring a shelter dog can sleep better at night, which should make you sleep better at night. But nobody wants to see a photo of you sleeping. Just your dog, okay? You can order them at waffleco.com, just like the breakfast waffle, but with an O. Buy one today and use the promo code Dennis20 to receive a 20% discount off your purchase. The Waffle Company is based in Columbus, Ohio, and all of its products are made with great care right here in the USA. Okay, let's get back to the show. Lance, we talked about, we've touched on some of this already, so I don't want to spend too much time. I want to use this last segment to talk about our rankings. I I have a feeling that's going to be a a little fiery. But I guess a couple of quick things on the impact of Quentin, just before we get into all of his movies. But like, you know, as I I said earlier, this, you know, after Pulp Fiction particularly, there was like this whole crop of, you know, copycat crime films that popped up in the mid-90s. I mean, I was trying to just list them off the top of my head the other day. There was Things to Do in Denver When You're Dead which I believe was with Annie Garcia, which I did see. Um, Two Days in the Valley, which I actually worked on. It was one of my movies I worked on at the time. Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag. Never saw that one. Um, remember the movie Go? Yeah. But all those kinds of movies came along with a lot of like, you know, unsavory characters and like some low lowlifes that are all pontificating and talking about random things. But it, it certainly gave birth to a whole crop of filmmakers that came along right after T- Tarantino, Doug Lehman, as I said, he did swingers guy, Richie, Matthew Vaughn. Um, some of those, and speaking of Doug Lehman, I think he's about to direct the reboot of roadhouse. Wow. Lance, that's a travesty. That is a travesty. I'll agree with you. Um, by the way, did you, I, um, you were rattling that off in every, every film I was, I was trying to think about what, what, what you were saying on it. Did you rattle off memento at all? I did not. That's a good call. Good because call. It's it's not the unsavory character thread, although there is some unsavoriness in that. It was you know this challenging of of time and and construct. Uh, beautiful. Um, and uh, I, I said beautiful because because my friend just uh, showed me what he was pouring in the glass, and it is a a lovely <laughs> lovely selection. If if you heard the first. Uh, time I was on this podcast, we had uh, a lengthy discussion about uh, about bourbon. So I'm always impressed with Dennis's selections. But um, but I, I, again, I think there's so many tangents that come off of Tarantino. To your point, that 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 spawned uh, inspiration for other um, directors, not just and movies, not just the unsavoriness, but um, you know, he's he's probably got his own family tree of directors that were exactly. influenced in a series of of, of different fashions. And just, I guess the other thing I would add to that, just like this notion of like how he's a sort of like resurrected certain people's careers, right? I mean, you talked about Travolta earlier, you know, that he was doing shit back at the time, which is true. But I mean, like John Travolta, Pam Greer, 
who was doing nothing with uh, Jackie Brown right. came along. Obviously, right. had a great career earlier in her career, but like at the moment of '97, Pam Greer is not part of the conversation. Robert Forster, who played Max Cherry, yeah, and like another, another random '70s actor that probably not doing a whole lot at that point. Tarantino knew, knows these people because he watched their films voraciously at this video store. Made a mental note of all these actors. These are the people on one of these films, and how grateful they must be. I mean, he brings out the best. Like, I mean, what do you think Christoph Waltz sends Tarantino for Christmas every year? I mean, right, like, this is right. a guy who he put him in Inglorious Bastards, wins the Oscar, puts him in Django Unchained, wins the Oscar. Like, two. I mean, like, Unheard of. Christoph Waltz, nobody, nobody knew who that guy was before Inglorious Bastards. I'm sure he did all kinds of films and plays and what have you, but I never heard of the guy. Right. So, so again, does the actor make the movie because Waltz is that good? Or does Tarantino make the actor because the script was, was that good? Or, or is it that the two become symbiotic and, and the script finds the actor, the actor finds the script and, and the common collaboration on the art is what allows them both to be successful, that the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. You know, there are circumstances like when, you know, Al Pacino obviously went on to be a tremendous actor, regardless of the Godfather, right? Like everything that guy touched was gold. Meryl Streep, everything that that he touched was gold. Is Christopher Waltz and everything he touches is gold? Uh, maybe now, maybe now. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, right? But, but certainly he was gold in the, in, in Tarantino's films. And I know you and I share an appreciation for Inglorious. I, I want to know. I, I got. I'm really curious as to where that ends up falling on your list. Um. All right. Let's do it. We can't. We can't start with one. We got to work our way up, right? At minimum, we got to yes. start with the worst. Okay. I need worst, to know the worst the best. What's yep. the universe of films that we're ranking? Because okay. Because because I I I have I have ten. I have ten. I have ten, I have 10 I as could, well. I could argue eleven that I never saw. By the way. So we, four we should. Rooms? No, I've seen four. No, uh, my best friend's birthday. Well, he directed that. He wrote. He, he direct- wrote and directed. It was his original film. I think it was in a short. It was okay, it, but it wasn't. It came. I predated Reservoir Dogs. So I look in. Hold on. I I didn't even know about this film until all of a sudden I'm like, I know we're going to be ranking films and i'm like all right i'm just gonna go into quentin tarantino films and i'm like oh shit but i'm like what do i do about four rooms what do i do about true romance is it just films that are he he wrote and directed because that's the common common thread in which we would probably get to that's where you get down to 10 or 11 so so you're the host you tell me what i'm i'm taking over what what's what are the ground rules here dennis we're doing the 10 movies that he directed i think my 10 are the same as your 10 i'm fairly certain so if we um, take my do, best friend's birthday off I'm, I'm a 10 as well that's off the list four rooms is off the list true romance is off the list but lance one one thing about true romance though what a missed opportunity that that tarantino didn't direct that movie now oh, tony scott tony so scott, good though the late, I mean, he did an amazing job directing that film. I love True Romance, but what a miss. Like, poor Tarantino didn't get to direct that. That would have been a great – I would love to have seen how how he approached that movie. There was a a trade I heard that originally Tarantino was going to do True Romance and the desire desire was was, – God, you just said his name, and now I'm drawing a blank. Who directed True Romance? Tony Scott. Tony Scott, Tony Scott thank Scott. you. There was a desire for Scott. Scott wanted Reservoir Dogs. And, oh, interesting. And Tarantino said, no, 
you'll you'll have romance but um i here's here's how i like to look at the universe if if he makes true romance then do you get uh some of the other films that he produced and wrote or does he exhaust this theme this style and yep. and now you don't get uh a Jackie Brown or you don't get um his transition into into Kill Bill when you do I, I mean you don't know how the world plays out but you know he might have had you know he's he, you've already uh, you've already said it he has nine films so far he's 10 films he wants to make and he might be like I'm not I'm not wasting it on true romance and true romance still became a powerful film natural born killer still becomes a powerful film and he's like those things are fine someone else doing it i'm i'm being more selective around the ones i'm going to bring to uh to the surface i think he tried to shed the one trick pony you know reputation after jackie brown because he did three films that were sort of all you know criminal thugs in la jackie brown very very different but if you add true romance into that man i'm not even sure what that means for pulp fiction right then then pulp is is just a copycat right he's not reinventing the way so it all it all plays out but to your to your point the there there were scenes in that movie though that scott captured captured tarantino and it felt like he directed it all right so we're going to go from worst to best correct worst to best yes so lance start many, off what's number what's number 10 for you without a question never even had to contemplate what number 10 was i not only put this as 10 but consider this a bad movie not a bad <laughs> not a bad tarantino movie but a bad movie, and I'm going with Death Proof. Holy shit! Yes, you, you are crazy. Nope. But you meant you said something earlier that like when when Death Proof came out, which was in 2008, was it seven or eight? I, it might have been seven or eight. It was part yeah, of the yeah. House double feature with Robert Rodriguez. Yep. He did Planet Terror, and Tarantino did Death Proof. Um, Death Proof's been on cable lately. I've actually seen that a couple of times over the last year. Um, it's not his best film, but I actually really, I hold it in much higher regard than you do, but I have it at nine. So, it's <laughs> but I would not, I would certainly would not say that it's a bad movie and you, you really don't think it's a good film at all. So I, that's interesting. I, I think, uh, he overcompensated in that movie. I think he wanted to, um, once again, demonstrate powerful women characters and yet, had to also destroy some women characters. I think the dialogue got sloppy. I, I just, I, I think he was a shadow of himself in that film relative to other films that he, that he I, I completely agree with you on the dialogue. I think that movie is, I mean, I don't mind talkiness, but that movie is really talky to the point that that's basically all the film is for the majority of it before, obviously the big chase scene at the end, which was really well choreographed, but I agree. Um, it was Tarantino being Tarantino. I hear you on Death Proof. Uh, number 10 for me was The Hateful Eight. Um, admittedly, I think I've seen yeah. it twice. Uh, that, just, that was nine for me. So we're at least, we're okay. at least in, we're close. in the same ballpark. Yep. Yeah, it just didn't, just didn't leave an impression on me. Um, I would like to watch that again at some point, and I'll, I, I will. But uh, when I walked out of the theater that, that day, I just, it, didn't, it didn't do anything for me. I think I, I clearly liked Hateful Eight more than you did. I, I, this, so this is how quickly the chasm gets crossed for me, meaning – 
I didn't like uh, Death Proof at all, but I really liked Hateful Eight. So that that's like the and yet Hateful Eight is is at nine for me. I, I like you. I haven't watched it multiple times, but I I like the characters. I don't think the characters came together in the story uh, as much as as other characters, but they were really interesting interesting characters. Tremendous acting and some of the some of the gimmickry of hateful eight i think he actually worked out in once upon i see similar elements in those two films and i think he he got it right in once upon and got it and got it wrong in hateful eight but still still an enjoyable movie that brings us to eight because i already talked about death proof was was number nine for me so what do you got at eight i went Django at eight so what did I all right so we we were in the same bottom three so and and I would be hard pressed to hear an argument from someone that one of those three movies should have jumped ahead of any of the top seven right there's it I can't believe I'm gonna bring it up but there's a fantasy football reference here which is played by silly men. Um, and is a waste of time. And yet both of us do it. You, you draft in tiers, right? And then you have your favorites among the tiers, but this is, this, these three films to me are obviously, um, what I consider the fourth tier. So I, I think there are actually four, four tiers of films in here and we can get into tiers, but, um, but I have it at eight. What the only thing I will add to that, I think that was perfectly stated. Um, I will add that I thought Samuel L. Jackson was a revelation in that film. Um, his performance at the end at, at, at DiCaprio's place, I think it was called Candyland or something. Um, really, he was amazing. And then I thought Christoph Waltz, again, I'm a big fan of him. I thought he was really good in that film. But that movie is just hard to watch. Very, hard to very watch. tough topic. Very tough topic. I mean, the, the fighting and it, it's just it makes me. I don't say this for many films, it just makes me uncomfortable. And obviously that's probably what he was trying to do, but certainly it just, it wasn't a, a pleasant experience. But here's again, where I, I think similar threads for, for Quentin in one place, he got it wrong. And in one place he got it right. I, I think to your point, that uncomfortableness, he's known for it. He got that very similar tough topic, et cetera. I think he got it. He didn't hit it on the head. It was good. It was very good. Django was a very good movie, but he didn't hit it on the head with Django. I think he hit that same uncomfortableness on the head with Inglorious, right? Very yep. uncom- very sure. uncomfortable topic, but he was able to make it where the, um, the story and the character development came together to those people you had to care for, you cared for, especially those complex characters uh, you found yourself liking folks that you didn't think you would like. And, and I think, uh, I think he got it right there and he didn't get it right in Django. Totally agree. Number seven. What do you got? This is where I struggle with the draft. This is, this is where it started to get really hard, really hard. This is, I agree. This is, <laughs> this could be because on very few lists would my, would this number seven be an actual seven, right? Like it, I agree. I, now we're getting into really, really good movies. Um, yep. And so I, I'm going to, I'm going to call this out just so you know, I've got, I've got, three films in the third tier. So I had three films in the fourth tier and three films in the third tier. And the reason why I say that is because 
I think I equally like all three of these films, but for the sake of a podcast and discussion, you have to choose one, right? So I've given sure, all my caveats. My number seven, yep. you're going to hate me, is Once Upon a Time. Really? I got I to gotta justify one statement, though. I haven't had the ability for the nostalgic appreciation of that movie to set in due to recency. But similarly, if it hit hit me harder, recency bias could have come into play. And so maybe those two things are neutralizing each other. No, that's fair. And I was going to suggest, was that the reason? And I I would say I had the opposite with that because like I remember – I mean, I definitely saw it in the theater, but it, I saw it right right before I moved to L.A. So then I had this appreciation for a lot of the landmarks and, and um, venues that are in that film that I've since now discovered by living here. So there's a personal piece for me with that. And then I'm obviously I'm reading the book. But I remember in 2020 during the COVID, you know, the early days of COVID, um, Stars was playing Once Upon a Time literally like 24-7. Like, I mean, every time I put the TV on that movie was on. And obviously we were, we were all home at that point. So I, I think I sort of accelerated my viewing mm-hmm. of that film and I saw it quite a bit. So um, I hear you, I have it higher, which we'll get into, but uh, my number seven, this was tough. Everything you just said, like we're at a point now, these are, these are big boy decisions. And I, I don't feel good about this movie at seven, but it's where it is. Kill Bill volume one. Oh, well, um, I'd like to hear your justification. I will tell you, Kill Bill Volume One is in the third tier with it. So for me, okay. so and and okay. so it's 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 just splitting hairs at, in this tier. Well, that, that's what it is. Like, I mean, I love this movie. I, I the ending is insane. I mean, when she's she's mowing those guys down, it, it's it's. I mean, when all you hear all the injured guys moaning and wailing in the background after she slaughters everybody, like if you listen, the sound design in that sequence is insane. Like, it, it's hilarious. And like, again, I love that movie. I love the music, everything about it. But I think the other movies that come before it on my top six are just better. So strong, strong. Um, It was tough, tough decision. So you already know that Once Upon a Time is in my third tier at number seven. You know, Kill Bill One is in my third tier, but it's not what comes next. Number six for me, again, in that third tier is Jackie Brown. Okay. Jackie again loved it. It's not. It's not the other movies for me. Uh, I actually felt at the time it came out, I was defending it um, against critics, uh, and I was really impressed with uh, the fact that it was still Tarantino. It was still similar in nature, and yet I was able to walk out of the the theater so happy that i got more quentin being quentin right like i i was thrilled leaving that picture but over time i don't go back to it as often as some of these other films which is why i had to slot it a little bit lower than some of the other ones you know it's interesting um i have it a little bit higher but not much and i what i will say about jackie brown i remember seeing it i was you know 26 and um I, I, I've talked to my brother about this in the past too, that like, I wish I, there, there was like decades where I wish I could go back in time and wish that I was an older person when those <laughs> movies were released. Sure. Um, like, I, like one of my upcoming podcasts this fall, I'm going to, I'm going to do an episode about deliverance in the 50th anniversary. 
And, you know, that movie came out in 72. I was one years old, right? So, like, you know, I saw Deliverance much later. And, like, I would have loved to have watched Deliverance as a 25 or 30-year-old man in 1972, right? Because I would would look at it through those eyes. So, back in the mid-90s, I felt like I was a pretty good appreciator of film, but not anywhere near what I am now. So I, I think I, I just look at movies differently now than I do back then. And so Jackie Brown was one of those films. Like when I first saw it, I walked out, I, I liked it, but I, I was a little bit like, I think I was looking maybe for something a little bit different. But now what I wrote down about it was like, that movie to me is like a fine wine. Like I, I it's a, it's, mm. it's such a great love letter. Like I didn't realize that when I first saw it, like what a romance that movie it really is between Jackie and, and Max Cherry. And sure. that comes to me really, really clearly much later in life. So, and I enjoy it for that reason. <clears throat> I, look, I, I also lived a, you know, uh, as a, a white kid in a suburb, um, the artistic exposure that I had wasn't as vast as, you know, frankly, I'm trying to provide to my, my daughter. Um, and so the appreciation for uh, the key African-American films at that time as well, and some of the references in the, in the movie, like you said, we're over my head and, and, and it has, uh, not that I, I consider myself an aficionado, but I, I certainly know more than I did now. And to that, to that end, what you said, it does help the movie age, no doubt. All right. So my six, um, is Kill Bill volume two. Um, I struggled, I struggled with this one. Um, I really love that film. I, I, I love the fact that it's basically a Western. If you break it down. Um, I mean, when she digs herself out of that coffin, it's oh. incredible. Incredible. But like that, I, I love Kill Bill Volume 2. I think it's a better film than the first one. I know you referenced that earlier. Um, I had Jackie Brown at five. I, I only say that now because we just referenced it. So I had Kill Bill 2 at six. I had Jackie at five, but I went back and forth with those two. Um, I kind of, I think there was a version of this list where Kill Bill 2 was at five um, <laughs> and Jackie, Jackie was at six. But um, I, I guess I've just, I've learned to really appreciate Jackie Brown for what it is. And I think the the De Niro performance in that movie is really good. And um, Robert Forster's great. There's just something very mature about it. And I loved what Quentin did with that film. Like it was a little bit of a departure for him in terms of subject matter. And, and I just really, I thought he kind of grew up as a filmmaker. And, and uh, I at five had Kill Bill one, like we, we already talked okay. about. So, Got it. Um, so just, should we, so I, again, I had Death Proof at 10, Hateful Eight at 9, Django at 8, Once Upon a Time at 7, Jackie Brown at 6, and Kill Bill 1 at 5. Okay, mine are Hateful Eight at 10, Death Proof at 9, Django at 8, Kill Bill 1, 7, uh, Kill Bill 2 at 6, and Jackie at 5. So we do have different top fours. Um uh, well, yeah, because you, you uh, went once you upon went really low. right. Once yeah. upon a time was not in my top four. It's in your top four. Uh, Kill Bill Two, which we already talked about, is in my top four. Um, so there's differences, and obviously we have three overlap going into the to, to the final four. Uh, final four for me, right off the bat, where I had the the difference maker for you. Kill Bill goes up to up to, to number two for me, but I, I did actually see this movie as a different tier. So Kill Bill 2 for me starts tier two. Uh, and there are two movies for me in that tier. Um, I, uh, I agree with everything you said. I think Kill Bill 2 for me, and I referenced it earlier, brought home some of the, the new style um, that, that Quentin had uh, developed. It just, you know, and maybe it's a benefit from finalizing the story arc 
Um, you know, being the last half of a movie, that's really good as a benefit of being better than the first half of a movie. So if you looked at it as one single movie, uh, I thought it was, it was fantastic. Um, but, but two just brought it home for me. Um, I listen, I, I, I love Kill Bill too. Um, so that's number four for you. That's number four. Number four. This is controversial. Um, I, I, no, you're not. I have no, pulled, you're not. I have, pulled, I have Pulp Fiction as number four. No, you don't. I know you don't. I do. Come on. This I, swear is, to, I swear. I swear to God that I do. This is. This is. See. This is. This is going to. We don't have time for this. We don't have time for this. This is. We don't have time for this nonsense. This is. This is the difference between between you and me, and where if anyone is already still still with us, however long we are into this podcast, they can see how much we actually agree and think about things similarly. And then you go and shatter all that similarity by pulling something out because you just, you are demonstrating your cynicism. That's what you're doing right now, where something becomes too mainstream. You know, the, the old joke, how do you, how do you draw a hipster? You drown them in the mainstream. And that's what I think is happening with your review of Pulp Fiction at number four. Well, first of all, I love Pulp Fiction. So everybody relax. Okay. <laughs> Pulp, Fiction is a, Pulp Fiction is a phenomenal film. Phenomenal film. I love it. I've seen it a million times. If it was on TV tonight, I would watch it. Um, and I even wrote, it's not a fair ranking. It's a groundbreaking film. It changed cinema. But I, I do think over time, I do think over time that Once Upon a Hollywood no is, going to, is going to move up the list. It will. It it's will. not going to. It'll it move will. up my list. I agree with you. Point, point, Mr. Kamlik. It is not. It is not going to leapfrog pulp fucking fiction. You're out of your goddamn mind. You're out of your mind. It did. It, it, it did on my list. No, no. You are. <laughs> this is recency bias. And you trying to overthink this one and be different. It is maybe you I are, did. Maybe you're, I did. Enti- you're entitled to your opinion. It's your podcast, but your opinion is incorrect. You you need to revise this. I listen. I recognize it's a controversial take. I but I mean, listen. I, I just referenced it. So once upon a time is is number three for me, and I think I think it might be the best work that DiCaprio has ever done. Um, I think it's one of the best things I've ever seen Brad Pitt do. Um, I realize it's recent. I realize it's a very high number, but I think over time that movie for me is going to just, it's going to sit there squarely at three and it's going to be very comfortable. I, I love it. I think it's I a phenomenal lo- movie. I love that we have this on the record so that we can revisit this. You will have heard the feedback from your listeners and you will <laughs> realize that you rode the boat out past the island. You're not even on an island. You rode it past the island and you're just, you're, you're Tom Hanks and Castaway struggling to grab Wilson on this one. You are, you are off the reservation looking for land and you're not going to find it where you're, where you're fishing. Not, not 10 years from now, not 20 years from now. What, what do you have? What do you have at three? I've got Inglorious. Interesting. I adore that movie. Okay. Inglorious to me, I, I was trying to figure out whether it's the top of tier two or the start of tier one. That's how I feel about this movie. It, it brought my faith back in Quentin that he's just able to reinvent himself nonstop. This is, this is what I considered the third iteration of Quentin Tarantino QT volume three. 
And yeah. I, I think he, he nailed everything he did. And I was blown away that you can reinvent yourself a third time and produce something that is arguably one of your best, your best pieces of work. Um, I have it higher. And uh, for me, what, listen, this is what I'm kind of giving it away. I think it's his masterpiece. I think, I think mm. that film is his masterpiece. I think it's, it's the greatest film he's ever, he's ever done. Wow. Wow. I mean, there's uh, nothing else to say. It's, it's, it's number one for me. That's we, we got the reveal quickly. Cause we're that, we're that different. That's amazing. Um, what well, did you listen, have? I, mean, in- I, I, I agree with you on the reinvention. I, I, you know, listen, he's, he's been under attack, but some of the revisionist stuff that he did in that film. And, um, but like, I, I, I thought I was just the work of a, of a mature filmmaker. Um, I mean, everything, everything about it, I just felt like it was almost, it was borderline perfection for me. So, and I can't say that for the other films. So that's, uh, for me, that's, that's the one that goes in the time capsule. I mean, I obviously Pulp Fiction has a place in, in cinema history and I get all that, but I think, I think as a filmmaker, that is Inglorious Bastards just takes, takes swings that he hasn't taken before. Wow. So, so you think time capsule 50 years from now, People watching who don't know the history, et cetera, will find inglorious bastards more worthwhile than Pulp Fiction. That's what you're saying. That yes, okay. Well, for for okay. me, yes. The answer so, is yes for me. So, so what did you? So what did you? What did you put at number two? Then you have Dogs no, at two. Number two is our our film of the evening, Reservoir Dogs. Um, and what I wrote down was that it was first, um, and it marked the arrival of just a singular talent. And I think, I think that carries a lot of weight for me. Like the, the and I, we got, we got into this earlier about me seeing that movie first, right. Before you saw fiction first. And like my, my experience of watching Reservoir Dogs, was just like, I've never seen anything like this. And that was just like, it got me so excited to see what else was going to come from this guy. That's why I loved when I read the script for Pulp Fiction and so forth. But like Reservoir Dogs to me is to this day, just a lean economical, not a lot of fat, and it was just, it was the work and the arrival of a very major voice in filmmaking. We're, we're in a full agreement. Reservoir Dogs is my number two. And obviously that brings us to, I think, our biggest disagreement uh, from, from the evening. Fiction, fiction rolls out as number one. I know that's the, uh, that's the popular choice. I, I just feel in this instance, popularity and the the wisdom of the crowd, the wisdom of the masses, is right. I, I think I think people know what his best film is. It changed film forever. I think it was ultimately his Sergeant Peppers. And while the Beatles put out incredible albums after that, reinvented themselves after that, uh, you you have to give credit where credit is due. Um, and I put Pulp Fiction at number one. Can't, I can't argue that, man. I, I can't argue that. I thought you were going to have uh, bastards up higher, but I, I, but that's that's none of that surprises me. I'm glad that we agree on dogs sitting at two. That's good. That's fair. Your your appreciation for Once Upon a Time is 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 big. I think uh, I threw you for a loop with the uh, the the disdain for for Death Proof, and uh, I think uh, I think you've 
you've misjudged uh, Pulp Fiction relative to the other films. <laughs> that's that's right. That's the final scoreboard. That's the heads I tell Listen, it. All I'm, I'm going to sure say the other judge has it, it up, by the way. Yes, you get the wrap up. Uh, all I'm going to say before we wrap it up <laughs> is that don't take this stupid list to mean that I don't like Pulp Fiction. Okay, fuck all that. I love Pulp Fiction. I love Pulp Fiction. It's just it's not for me. It's not his greatest film. Like, I, I just don't think that. I, I don't. I think there's – I watched it recently. I watched it again a few weeks ago. I'm like, I – there's just – there's there's parts of it I just just are wonderful. And there's other parts that I sometimes I'm like, yeah, maybe it's just because I've seen it too many times, you know, and that's very possible. As, so, a, as a tribute to you, I will rewatch – because it's also amazing. I will rewatch Pulp and Glorious and Once Upon a Time and over uh, – a a drink uh, and another conversation because we can go forever. I will, I will take another stab at those three. I, I have a hunch I'm going to end up in the same place, but I will rewatch all three with this discussion and your analysis in my mind to to potentially influence how I view those films. I get it. I recognize I'm not. I'm not going to be very popular. I don't have any. I don't get fan mail for the show, so I don't. Really care. <laughs> if, but if I did, you might get some hate mail. mail. <laughs> yeah, bring, bring on the hate mail, Lance. This is what I'll say before I let you go. Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but Tarantino's got a movie theater out here in LA. It's called the New Beverly. Um, he he bought it years back, and so he basically plays. He certainly plays all his movies. Um, if when you whenever I drive by there, I live really close to it. Whenever I drive by, there's always a sign that says like. And glorious bastards tonight, Friday night at midnight. And uh, so, right now, over the next two weeks, they're playing Reservoir Dogs, um, the 30th anniversary. They're playing Quentin's um, personal print of the film. I think wow. through mid, mid, through the end of August. And no, I would love nothing more than for you and I to go see it together. And this, I've, I've said this to you before. I wish we lived in the same city because these conversations would be phenomenal over over a bourbon or two um, in person. But um, I appreciate. You uh, doing this for me tonight? I can't believe I just took two hours, but I actually can believe it. And um, but listen, this was a blast. I knew it would be. Um, thank you for your time, and I really do wish we could go see dogs together. That would be a lot of fun. Thanks for having me, Dennis. A, a joy. Good stuff coming up in the fall, everybody. Thanks for listening. As always, I always appreciate all your lovely feedback. Whenever you do listen, it means a lot to me. And uh, Lance it was awesome. And uh, be well, my friend. Sweat, he walks in.